Blog Talk Radio. August 29th, 2015 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism is the philosophy that uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and if you notice, the sound in here is not as good as normal Blog Talk has had some issues, I guess, with their hi-fi studio, and they've bumped a whole bunch of us all back into lo-fi. I actually did not get a chance to hear Yaron Brooks' show earlier today because I happen to be teaching my fall semester class during the time slot that he has for his show. So I don't know if his account was also downgraded, but mine was. Um, I don't know if I have the, the fancy type account that he does, but I think that maybe they got overcommitted in terms of putting everybody up to hi-fi. So what you're listening is me connected via Skype here this evening. It seems to be going smoothly. How are you guys doing there in the chat room? Okay. Uh, John says his was. Does that mean his is also on Skype like mine? Sound going okay there? Yeah. Okay, well, I think it's going fine as far as I can tell. Uh, Rob says, I didn't have to refresh this time. There may be some actual bonuses for you guys, whereas the sound quality isn't quite as good, it's maybe going to be more reliable service. And that's why they did it. I, they are uh, you know, having basically some te- technical difficulties that they want to uh, talk about. I heard that own discussed regulation earlier today and the impact of regulation on all of us. I assume that's that was one of the main topics, at least. So I do need to go and catch up on that. My show for tonight is titled Heroes, Handshakers, and Homeschooling. And handshakers just means politicians, the synonym. I cheated. I actually, in, in order to get an alliterative title today, I had to go to the online thesaurus, and I was looking for election candidates. What could I get? And for candidates, you get handshakers. So that's the show. Um, There are other topics as well, but those are the main three. As it stands right now, I've started my new semester. I've had my second uh, philosophy of law seminar, and I teach it on Saturdays, and I'm pretty darn tired. And I'm trying to figure out if I can go ahead and, given my rest of my week's schedule, plop this show into, say, late morning on Fridays. So I hope to do that next week. This week was a short week for me, so I wasn't able to take that time and do that. But I think I'm going to be able to do it next week. So do stay tuned. Follow me on social media at Amy Peekoff uh, or over on Facebook. I've got both the Don't Let It Go Unheard page and a personal page, Amy Peekoff, over there on Facebook. And I will let people know. But my plan is to do it somewhere in kind of late morning, early afternoon-ish, depending on where you are, 
on Friday. So we'll try and, and do it that way. But anyway, I had to do a show tonight mostly just as a tribute to the three Americans who helped to save the day in France. And in fact, that happened just before last week's show. But last week, we devoted the entire show to talking about immigrants. By the way, if you want to still chime in on the debate topic of immigration, you can go to the link, the first link at the program notes over at my blog at DontLetItGo.com and join in on the discussion. I do see an area code of maybe one of the discussion discussants, as you might call it, a, part, a participant in the discussion over there. Uh, Ed, I think, maybe is there. If, if you want to do a, a follow-up, we can do a quick follow-up, but I want to talk about that for the entire show. I want to talk about the American heroes who just kicked some major butt in France last week. I, I just think that that's worth a, a show in and of itself. So, um, we have some other things too, a few things about how the election is going. It looks like Hillary is not doing very well. Jeb is not doing very well. So it's not going to be a Clinton-Bush election. It's looking like it's not going to be. It's going to be somebody else. And then the question is, who is it going to be? Um, but yeah, check those links out as well. We're going to talk about the Obama administration winning a ruling in the NSA data collection case. How significant is it really? I think it's hard to say. A little bit of a health interlude. And we also want to talk about the topic of homeschooling and, in effect, going for, you know, outside the government schooling model and doing a lot better, even if you are on a limited budget. So we'll go ahead and take a look at those topics as well. Homeschooling really is, right now, an exciting development in the future of the country and we want to keep that movement going well um so yeah so rob says the sounds working well for him welcome rob mark john i see just gene selfishness thanks for joining me here tonight if you want to chime in on any of the topics it's 760-888-5817 again that's 760-888-5817 and just to kind of sum up, as far as I could see, I'm, you know, kind of looking at the comments as they come in through my email on the on the blog. But I know that the debate's going back and forth fast and furious. And as far as I can tell, the stalemate is on the issue of whether somebody just has the absolute right to walk across the border of a country just as they do from state to state within the United States. Or are we allowed to stop them for some sort of minimal check? See if they have a disease, see if they have a criminal background, see if they might belong to some sort of terrorist organization. Is there something we're allowed to do to even stop them at the border? Or does somebody automatically have the right to come in simply because they want to? Is a country... You know, if if we all get together and we decide to delegate to a particular government a you know the responsibility to have the monopoly on the legal use of force in a geographic area, does that therefore, because it's a government, make it so that they cannot stop anybody coming into that geographic area? Because after all, it's a government. You know, an individual would have the right to stop somebody before they come over in their private property. But if we all together 
a unity of private property owners and renters and whatever decide to delegate to a government the defense of this entire area? Do we thereby lose the ability to stop people as they come in over the border of this area that we have allocated? I tend to think no, that there is some screening, and then you can start to ask about, you know, on what basis can people be screened? And I would say no for ideology and and perhaps no for some of the things that Ed wanted to argue for last week. But, um, you know, anyway, that is that is the main question, though. Is there a right to stop people at all? Some people would say no. There's a presumption of innocence, and unless you have some sort of probable cause, particularized suspicion, you can't even stop them as they're coming in. Others would say, yes, you have the right to stop them for certain limited purposes. And then the question is, what are those purposes? What is the government able to do? I want to limit it based on what government always has a cause to do anything about, which is the person's uh, possible you know, involvement in rights violations. Um, you know, do they pose a threat of a contagious deadly disease? Do they have a criminal background or some involvement in an enemy or terrorist organization? This is the kind of thing you want to look for. And that's what I argued for in the original post. So go ahead, chime in. The debate is is still live and going well and see what you think. If you think that there is no right, you can argue, of course, on that side. But if you think there is, a, you know, if our government has the power to stop these people, at least for some minimal type of screening, then on what basis do you defend that, right? Because some people are saying it's a government, so therefore a government doesn't have a right to, you know, in effect regulate, to take an action in advance of any evidence that a person is or has violated a right. So um roger in the chat room says this is a great time to do, to do the show for people in japan and korea yeah maybe not for united states as much so you guys might like my new friday time next next week we'll see about it um so here's the story the story that made me for sure want to do a show tonight that we really needed to and it is heroism american style that's the headline that they have over at the spectator uh spectator.org when they described what went on, I believe it was on the 20th of August over in Paris. We had three Americans, Spencer Stone, Alex Scarlatos, and Anthony Sadler. Three friends, they were all on a European vacation on, I guess, what they call a fancy train hurtling towards Paris. And then a terrorist bristling with weaponry started attacking passengers. They were unarmed, but as far as I understand, oh yeah, Scarlato said, let's go to Stone, and then Stone just ran down the aisle and grabbed the man, uh, you know, the, the armed man by the neck and wouldn't let him go. And then the other ones came, grabbed his gun, and then a couple of them, uh, Sadler was the third American, and then a British passenger, Chris Norman, they went ahead and held him down and beat him up and everything. They knocked this guy out and they tied him up and they turned him over to the French authorities. And over at the American Spectator, the one characteristic that they talked about that basically made these people American heroes and you know distinctively American heroes 
is the initiative, the improvisation that they used in doing this. They just said they had no plan, nothing. They just said, let's go. Uh, over uh, the, the author of this piece at the American Spectator is Froma Harop, and she says, improvisation requires letting gut instinct take the wheel from overthinking. As Scarlatos, a National Guardman who spent time in Afghanistan, later told the media, his actions on the train weren't, quote, a conscious decision. So there wasn't a whole lot of planning and deliberating and everything in advance. And what I wanted to read from you was a little bit from Ayn Rand's essay from 1971. It's called Don't Let It Go. And it's from the book Philosophy Who Needs It. I put a link over in the program notes for today's show um, Don't Let It Go, as you know, of course, is the namesake of this show, Don't Let It Go Unheard. I just added unheard to come up with the title here. But it in Don't Let It Go is the American sense of life. And in this essay, Ayn Rand describes the various facets, by example, of what constitutes the distinctively American sense of life, the sense of life that is saving us all from you know, descending too quickly into a totalitarian society. So let me read to you part of it that occurred to me, you know, when I first heard this story and in particular heard about the issue of innovation connected to heroism. Uh, Now I'm quoting from Rand. An American economist told me the following story. He was sent to England by an American industrial concern to investigate its European branch. In spite of the latest equipment and techniques, the productivity of the branch in England kept lagging far behind that of the parent factory in the U.S. He found the cause, a rigidly circumscribed mentality, a kind of psychological caste system on all the echelons of British labor and management. As he explained it, in America, if a machine breaks down, a worker volunteers to fix it and usually does. In England, work stops and people wait for the appropriate department to summon the appropriate engineer. It is not a matter of laziness, but of a profoundly ingrained feeling that one must keep keep one's place, do one's prescribed duty, and never venture beyond it. It does not occur to the British worker that he is free to assume responsibility for anything beyond the limits of his particular job. Initiative is a, quote, instinctive, i.e. automated, American characteristic. In an American consciousness, it occupies the place which, in a European one, is occupied by obedience. Now, mind you, Rand is painting with a broad brush here, all right? So we did have one British IT professional who jumped in and helped the Americans once they were doing it. Of course, he wasn't the instigator, but he did jump in as well and help to beat up this terrorist. So that was uh, good for him. But you see this issue of here are these guys, they're on vacation, it's not their job to be doing this, and yet when they saw trouble, they just instinctively just got up and took care of it. And this is what an American does. So you here see directly in a very perceptual way a you know an aspect of the American sense of life contributing to the saving of countless lives on that train in Paris or on its way to Paris in France. So 
you know, in, in the essay, Rand is talking about how this American sense of life is saving us all from totalitarian dictatorships. So from, in a very attenuated way, it is saving our lives. But here you have this immediate, you know, perceptual level grasp in effect, uh, watching this one very strong aspect, initiative, innovation in the face of tremendous danger. And they just get up and they do it and they improvise and they go and they take care of the problem when it's there. Whereas if they're more European, actually there there is a, um, I'm not sure if I gave you the link to the article or just the video. There's a video where these guys describe, you know, what happened and what they did and everything. But um, that was actually out of an article, I think from the, um, one of the, one of the UK, the, maybe the Daily Mail UK. And, in that article, they describe what the crew, what the French crew of the train did. And that French crew apparently took maybe a few passengers with them and just kind of hid in a car. They didn't, they wouldn't even take care of it. I mean, what is it? They're, you know, they're not security or anything. So who are they to actually go beyond their role? And so they were completely caught flat-footed when they were being interviewed by the press or questioned about this, what they did. And they said, well, all I can say or I can tell you that they did their job or something. And that's exactly the type of mentality that Rand is talking about here, this idea that you don't step out of your place, that you just, you know, stick to your assigned role. And even if there's a problem beyond that, you don't do it. Um, it, it's interesting. When I was really young, uh, I managed a record store a long time ago. And it was because I loved music. But this chain of record stores actually had a very kind of rigid, bureaucratic management structure and everything. And they had all these rules. And when there were problems, I just wanted to fix the problem. But I wasn't didn't want to follow some set thing that was in a manual or whatever. And I was always kind of bristling against that. And it turned out that that particular record chain, which was a Sam Goody's, went on to not do very well. Of course, most record chains didn't, but it was one of the first ones to have to shut down a lot of stores. And I think there was a reason for that, that, you know, that everything was too rigidly circumscribed and the, the power of, you know, managers at a store level to innovate and solve problems was, was cramped. So you see this in, uh, you know, a lot of places, but here we here we have these Americans saved lives. Apparently they weren't dressed well enough to go meet the president. He did, they didn't have any suits with them. Only the uh the British IT member actually had his suit with him. So Oh, Tony says that he was an assistant manager at Sam Goody right up until the company went under Oh, you were a manager as well? Okay, awesome. Oh, manager, okay, assistant manager. Yeah. It was a <laughs> Mark says what's a record store? Okay, now I'm feeling old. That's great. That's great. But yeah, uh, improvisation, you just have to let gut instinct take the wheel from overthinking. They said they just went in there. And of course, you know, for them, gut instinct means going by their training and just taking this guy down. It wasn't like they had, you know, here's a guy, he has a gun, he's going to shoot a bunch of innocent people. There's not a whole lot of thinking required at that moment. They just use whatever they have at their disposal and take care of the problem, which is what they did. This is awesome. So kudos to them. Um, I mean, this is this is really just amazing. And I do urge that you go ahead and go watch the video where they describe that as well. And 
go ahead and go for a refresher with Philosophy Who Needs It and don't let it go. Uh, Tony and Rob are catching up here in the chat room as well. So welcome, everyone. Uh, So we need to go ahead and look at what the state of our country is and the state of the upcoming elections. And in the past couple weeks, we haven't really talked about it. Last week, we talked about immigration, which I don't know if it's still the top issue of the 2016 election. A lot of people think it's going to be. But this week, we've seen some candidacies flounder and others seem to be gaining a lot more of steam and traction. One piece that made it to the Drudge Report, uh, kudos to Daniel Greenfield for it, is this one called The Last Days of Hillary. And he makes a very interesting point. There's a whole lot of people, and actually there's this great meme that Bosch Faustin put out there, which is um, there was a picture of Hillary at one of the rallies where she's going out and campaigning. You know, she just likes to go out and campaign and not talk about any real issues, just get people very enthusiastic. She just wants to be president. That's it. And this is one of the main points that Greenfield makes in here is that she doesn't want to talk about issues. All she has is ambition to be president. She just wants to go out there and schmooze and get people excited about her candidacy, mostly because she's a woman. And they're just supposed to elect her. So here she is. She's out here at one of these campaign stops. And as Fiona says in the chat room here, yeah, she's wearing an orange suit. Now, I do think that that suit was maybe somewhere in the reddish orangish. It wasn't maybe as bright orange as it looked in some, but there were some instances of this photo out there that just looked perfectly orange. She's wearing an orange, a fully complete orange suit, as you would in prison. So uh, Bosch made this excellent meme out of it, you know, that moment when you realize that, you know, you're being investigated for criminal charges and you are out there wearing an orange suit. And I think it was like giving a Hitler salute or something. And great, total, total great meme. And, And a lot of us have been saying, if any of us were accused and in fact had been shown to have done some of the things that Hillary has done with this email server, we'd all be in prison by now, right? That would be us. And we'd think, well, maybe she deserves to be. Some people really want her to be. But Daniel makes a really, really good point here, which is that here is Hillary Clinton. She has had the ambition to become president for a very long time. She has, for this second, you know, try to do it, put together a tremendous war chest of money, millions and millions of dollars. She spent a whole ton of money. She has spent so many years wanting to reach this place. And he's saying she's going to fail. She is failing. Most people now associate with her name the words liar and uh, I forget what some of the other ones. There was like three different terms that the, you know the polls are showing that they yeah liar, dishonest, and untrustworthy. These are the terms that they associate with her now. So imagine, you know, the polls. She spent a whole bunch of money on polls, and now they're showing that the top three terms that they people associate with her are liar, dishonest, and untrustworthy. Her chances look very slim. At first, it seemed that she had struck a deal to get the endorsement from Obama, but I think now she is viewed so badly by everyone that Obama can't even stand to endorse her, and it looks like he's going to endorse Biden instead. So she's toast, 
And, you know, here is Greenfield, and he says, look, she doesn't have to go to prison. The worst punishment for Hillary Clinton is going to be watching somebody else get sworn in in 2017. And that's that's really the truth. That's really the truth. Um, Rob says it's orange, the new black. <laughs> HRC equals Benghazi, says Fiona. And, and imagine that. It's not even Benghazi. You know, it reminds you of the mafiosos. And, you know, these people would be the head of these huge criminal organizations and guilty of so much killing and theft, embezzlement of all kinds, fraud, anything in the books, you know, illegal, uh, you know, making of alcohol and, you know, selling of drugs and prostitution rings and anything you could think of, right? All of this corruption. And then what is it that they get them on? They get them on tax fraud or something, tax evasion. And Hillary, I, I would really say that Benghazi is probably the worst. I mean, you know, you could go back to Watergate and Vince Foster, and we don't know, you know, all the things that happened there. But Benghazi, to me, is the most atrocious thing I know of that Hillary is guilty of, you know, leaving these four Americans just to get toast over there. Our own ambassador to, to be raped and, and murdered brutally. So you'd say that would be the thing that should hang her out to dry and make her candidacy invalid, but it's going to be this weird email thing. As far as we know, she probably was, you know, taking, oh, whitewater, I'm getting reminded here. Um, as far as we know, she was taking precautions, you know, to keep the email safe and it wasn't going to be hacked and everything else. But nonetheless, this is the thing that is getting her. And imagine, you know, years and years and years of ambition for this. And this is the thing that's going to get her. It really should have been Benghazi. I I remember seeing um, uh, around, you know, driving around town, there was a bumper sticker. This person has like, um, who the hell is Ben Ghazi or something? Like making fun of the fact that people were concerned about what went on in Benghazi. Like Hillary, you know, what difference does it make? Now, it'd be really funny, right, if, um, you know, Hillary tries to confront uh, Barack Obama as to why, you know, he doesn't endorse her. Because that, that was probably the deal, right? Bill Clinton endorses Obama. Obama endorses Hillary Clinton this year. That's what happened back, you know, back in uh, 2008 and then 2012 uh, was, you know, Bill Clinton coming out for for Obama. But no, didn't happen. Didn't happen. And if Hillary tries to confront him, suppose he says, oh, you know, well, what difference does it make? You know, you, Biden, you know, it's all for the cause, right? For the Democratic cause. I mean, after all, she's supposed to be part of the larger cause. It's not supposed to be all about her, right? But that's the whole thing. Um, you know, Daniel identified it as well, that it really is just about her. Um, she just has ambition to be president, and that's it. She doesn't, you know, really even care about the particular issues. It's all about becoming president. Um, I'm quoting here from Greenfield. He says, Hillary Clinton doesn't have a message. She has ambition. Her obsession with becoming president has overshadowed any reason that anyone might have to vote for her. She offers no hope and less change. Her candidacy is historic, 
but only for her. There is no promise she can make that anyone will believe. End quote. It's amazing. Um, so I, th- I think he's right, and I do think that it probably will be the worst punishment that she can have, and it's going to be interesting. Then the question is, who are we going to end up with? I saw a sticker today for Bernie Sanders. There are some people who are very passionate about Bernie Sanders out there. Biden, can you see people being passionate about Biden? I couldn't see people being passionate about Biden. It'd be sort of like Bush on our side, Jeb Bush on our side. Some people, I guess, would get behind him, but I don't think they'd be very passionate. Any thoughts on who we're going to get? I guess it's probably going to maybe be Biden on their side. I don't know. But then who is it going to be on our side? One story, uh, I call it our side. I assume that we're supporting the GOP as the lesser of the evils, even though some people, they might jump ship depending on who the GOP actually ends up nominating. Uh, Over on the GOP side, the headline over at Politico is Top Jeb Fundraisers Leave Campaign Amid Troubling Signs. They say the move comes amid weak poll numbers and concerns that Bush's torrid fundraising pace has slowed. So three top fundraisers for him abruptly parted ways with his presidential campaign on Friday. So I guess that means this is just yesterday. This is pretty bad for him. Uh, This is amid personality conflicts and questions about the strength of his candidacy, Politico has learned. Three different versions of what transpired. The Florida-based fundraising consultants Chris Money that's a funny name for a fundraiser. Uh, Trey McCarley and Debbie Alexander have said that they voluntarily quit the campaign and they were still working with the super PAC. Others said that the three who worked under the same contract were let go because they were no longer needed for the current phase of the campaign. Nobody responded for requests for comment. Uh, his spokesman, Tim Miller, would say only that Governor Bush has the widest and deepest fundraising operation of any candidate in the field. Ann Herberger, a longtime aide with more than two decades of experience in state and national politics, will continue to lead the operation in Florida with our team in Miami, end quote. See, they say everything's fine, everything's wonderful, but Politico doesn't think it's all that good. (sighs) Who else? is out there and how are they doing um, we also have a magazine that uh, magazine article that says that Rubio Paul and Walker their campaigns are gasping for oxygen this is according to Breitbart it says um, at the end of May we had Marco Rubio leading the field he was followed closely by Jeb Bush Mike Huckabee Scott Walker then Cruz and Rand Paul Walker and Rubio were close to tied, given the margin of error. Trump was in the back of the pack, pulling far behind Pataki. But now, after summer, we've got Donald Trump dominating. Closest competitor with less than half the support is Ben Carson. And then we have Rubio, Cruz, and Walker all tied in fourth place at 4%. Uh, Rand Paul has faded to 10th, just edging out Chris Christie. Rubio, Walker, and Paul each led the field in various polls throughout the early days of the campaign, but no longer. Uh, Now, Walker, they say, is still a strong third in Iowa, but throughout June and July, he had a solid lead first place in that state. 
so um, now they're saying that Walker might be on his way to losing. So we don't know what's going on with their campaign. Um, Fiona is asking here in the chat room, is Trump teeing up with Cruz to attend some event this week? What I have heard is that there's going to be a Tea Party rally against the Iran deal and that Trump is going to attend that. And the question about that is, would it, is it going to have any effect at all? Is that going to have any effect at all? I'm seeing headlines that they think that Obama's got the votes to pass the Iran deal, that there's some sort of corruption going on such that all of our lawmakers in Washington, or at least enough of them, are willing to overlook the tremendous danger to this country of this Iran deal. I mean, imagine you have Trump, who's really just kind of a wishy-washy populist, if you, you know, if you kind of scrape aside all of the really tough-sounding rhetoric that's coming out of his mouth. He's a very middle-of-the-road, wishy-washy populist type. And even he is willing to go and say that we shouldn't be giving any money to Iran. It's a bad deal. If Trump is unifying with Cruz on this, you know it's bad. I mean, I, I obviously trust Cruz on this, but um, we, sh- we should not be sitting at a table with them, and that is a mistake that that uh, you know Trump is implicitly making because he's just saying it's a bad deal. He would send the really good, strong business negotiators in there and get a good deal. That's what he would do. But overall, we know that they shouldn't be dealt with at all. But he says, no, they shouldn't be getting any money, and I think that's wonderful. Will this rally, with Trump being there, put enough pressure on these lawmakers such that they'll actually not give Obama the votes about it. It's really going to be interesting to see. I'm going to like seeing that. I do have a call here. I'm going to go ahead and grab it while we're chatting election. Hi, who's this? You're on the air. Uh, This is Harold. How are you? Hi, Harold. I didn't get a chance to talk to you last week, so I'm glad you called back. Yeah, Um, you got so many good things this week, Uh, so many subjects. I guess I'll just have to pick one. (laughs) Pick pick whichever, and if you if there is a, a quick follow up you want to do on the immigration topic, you're welcome to do that as well. Yeah, on the on the immigration, I was just going to give you a just a quick practical rundown because I went through the process myself. Um, there are laws on the books. It's just the executive is just not implementing the laws or following them or doing anything. But there are laws on the books about. Um, Okay, just just very briefly, here's things you cannot be. You cannot be a prostitute, have used a prostitute, be a polygamist, an anarchist, a former communist or Nazi. Um, You have to have a background security check in every country you've lived for more than six months, including an FBI background check. You have to, on the medical front, you have to have a full medical at a doctor that's prescribed by the, the government here. They tell you who to go to. You have to bring your x-rays from your tuberculosis exam. You have to bring your AIDS um, test, et cetera, et cetera. It's very thorough. Now, this is and this is for you to be a citizen, right? This is for you to be no, a citizen? No, green card. This is just, just for, for green, green card. card. Wow. Yeah, this is, this is without the whole Constitution and Bill of Rights test. They used to be pretty thorough on the Bill of Rights when I did my citizenship test, but I don't know how it is now. Mm-hmm. And they do an English test as well. You have to write a sentence correctly, punctuated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that is the law. That hasn't changed. It's just the fact that they're selectively enforcing or not enforcing. That's all I can tell. Um, as for the whole immigration thing, you've got 11 million people. I'd say let them stay, weed out the criminals, 
um, and and expel the criminals from the country, or, or arrest them and put them in some prison, whatever. That that that's what I say on the 11 million, because for me, everyone's focused on those 11 million people. What about the other 300 million people? Why are we defocusing from all the the hardship they're going through? Right. Sh- the the main focus should be on on the normal people. Yeah, and and then the question is really, you know, some people say, well, it's not just 11, it's 20 million or whatever. Um, I I I am kind of dumbfounded at the idea that there are a number of illegal immigrants who are actually members of active criminal gangs in our country. Yeah, the MS, and that, MS-13, and that those, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and that they haven't been deported. I mean, this this needs to be, uh, the, you know, a huge priority. But, you know, it, it's interesting because Cruz, is getting a lot of flack from some Trump supporters because, you know, of course, the Trump supporters, they want to, you know, deport everybody and then maybe let some of them back or whatever. And Cruz apparently is pro-legal immigration. Well, he you know, that, wants- is, that is the law. If you go out of status for any reason, you have to leave the country and apply for your visa outside. So that's, that, is, that is correct. I mean that yeah that's technically what you're supposed to do but now since we haven't enforced the law for so long how in the world practically speaking are you going to do that with millions and millions of people it's it's a very tough problem and Cruz Cruz is not even as far as I know answering the question as to whether he would even do that you know that that Trump has promised but yeah when, and, on on the whole Cruz uh, by the way just okay just on Hillary briefly this is in in like 20 seconds Hillary is going to get passed over again, and you can listen to the whole thing. Monica Crowley predicted this a month ago. She's been on John Batchelor at night talking about it several times, and she got it spot on, and things are happening and rolling out exactly the way she said it was going to happen. Hillary wow. does have a big machine, but she doesn't have the machine that, that Obama has. She was asking to get his machine to add to hers, and he's not giving it to her. He's 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 holding off. He's probably going to give it to Joe Biden. Right. Bernie Sanders is a total wuss. He got pushed off his own stage by a couple right. of protesters. I mean, how can you how can you have a guy like that running running the United States? I mean, the first the first foreign dictator, the North Koreans will come along and he'll just roll over. So he's useless. So right. it'll be Joe Biden, and Obama. Biden has no machine, but Obama will give him his machine, and and Biden will will run with that. And that's and with Elizabeth Warren, you heard about the meeting. Uh, yes, I heard that they met. And so, do you think he's going to have her as running mate? He has to. How is he going to get Bernie Sanders' people and Hillary's people? The, right. Uh, Elizabeth Warren fits the bill on both, and everything. All the stars line up just right for Biden, and he'll just be this like robot that does what he's told. That's what I think. I, that, and so that's exactly. That's exactly what it is. And then the only thing we could hope on our side is, I mean, given the current poll numbers, is that what you'd have uh, Trump and Cruz and that somehow oh. Cruz could have a beneficial influence yes, the, on the, Trump? That, that, was, that was the third thing I wanted to comment on. Yeah. Um, Cruz has a machine. He's built a very nice machine. He has representatives in every state. He has great funding. I mean, he's pretty much on a par with Bush on the funding and the political machine, but he's worked really hard. He went throughout the whole of the Southeast recently, last month, and did a very thorough campaign style.
stops everywhere in the Super yep. Tuesday states. So he's all ready to go there. He's not going to get caught off guard by the bushes the way what happened to McCain the first time in South Carolina. This big rally in, in Washington, D.C., was set up months ago. Cruz booked all the venues and did everything, and this was before he even knew where he would be in the polls, before Trump even came on the scene. Wow. And this this thing is an anti-Iran deal rally, yep. and basically the organizations involved was Zionist Organization of America, which is a bipartisan Jewish group. Then you have some foreign policy conservative group, and then you have the Tea Party Patriots of Virginia. So those are the so that's pretty much pulling in people from across party lines. And then what happened is Cruz then gave an invite to um, what's it Trump Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it reminds me of Teddy Ruxpin. Those old Teddy Ruxpin dolls, you know, talk out the front of their mouth. Right. Yeah. If you ever seen them, then you, you know what I mean. Um, but he invited Trump, and Trump, of course, is going to go along. And I think Trump is no dummy. He's very clever. He knows that his um, PR power is worth... He doesn't have to give Ted Cruz money. He just has to show up, and Ted Cruz gets automatic publicity. So him just going in there is going to shine a light on this whole thing and magnify and amplify the the benefit of this whole rally. And Ted Cruz is going to pick up some of the... You know the um, the side, some of the like when you're behind a boat, you pick up some of the power just by being near it. So he's going to pick up some of that, and I think eventually Trump does not have a machine. He's not organized in the states. He is not doing petitions. No. He's not collecting signatures. He's not doing any of the things that he absolutely has to do to get on the ballot. He's not even trying. So this is all a bunch of fluff, and he's just getting the publicity and the free TV time. But he's not a serious candidate. Otherwise, he would be doing all the things he's supposed to now, be doing. Now, what, what, is, what is their deadline to get on the ballot in South Carolina? Because I saw a post earlier today that Cruz put out where he says, okay, I'm on the ballot in South Carolina or you know, something like that. You and have to just... collect. I know for the Senate races, you have to collect 10,000 signatures, and they have okay. to be verified, and which means you probably have to collect about 14,000 because, you know, a bunch of them get uh, um, not recognized. So you have to collect more, th- more about one and a half times as many signatures as you're supposed to just to f- be safe. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is for presidential races, but it goes state by state, and you have to go and collect signatures. And there's a very special legal way by which the signatures have to be verified mm-hmm. and confirmed. So it's and, a complicated process. And as far, process. as far as you know, Trump isn't doing any of this. No, he's not. And... Um, He's not making all the moves that he has to make, so I don't Mm. see how. You know, all he's doing is putting his face on TV every day and saying something controversial to make sure he gets on TV, and he'll say anything. And then, of course, there was the smackdown of uh, Megyn Kelly, but kind of she deserved that. I kind of like her. Sometimes she's very good, but she kind of misbehaved with Trump and and did not act as an objective journalist. So she kind of has a Jekyll and Hyde side to her. Anyway, I've covered everything I wanted to cover, and uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to bounce off me. Yeah, I have one question for you. Do you think that this rally can do anything good practically? Because I'm seeing these ominous headlines now saying that Obama is pretty much, you know, getting the votes together and the deal's going to go through. 
when is this rally and do you think it can do anything to Nine, stop it? In the 9th, 9th of September, somewhere around there, very within okay. a day or two. I just think the rally is good for firing up people, collecting uh, volunteer callers and volunteer, you know, people are handing out flyers and putting up yard signs. It's it's always good to show the flag. And there's nothing wrong with people, you know, becoming active. So the, it takes a lot of people. There's a lot of work to be done. And time will run out very quickly. People don't realize how. I, would, I, I, I did some help for the Peter Schiff campaign in Connecticut. Right. And you always wish you had more time and you wish you had more money and more more volunteers. It's, it's always a resource crunch. And people leave it too late, and then they realize it's too late. You can't catch up at the end. Right, right. So you think mostly it's a campaign event, and it's maybe not going to do anything. It's not. Stop the deal. It, it was... It was all about the foreign policy issue. That was the main gist of it, to shine light on it, to draw attention to it, and get some public opposition, getting people to call their congressmen. I think that's what it's all about. Okay. Well, I do hope that it does something, and I thank you for calling back in again, Harold. And, yeah, we're just going to have to keep on this and, and see how it goes. I do have another call. I think this might be Ed. Hi, is this Ed? Hey, how you doing? I'm yeah. doing fine. You yeah. know, it is it is really true with you as well. I'm I'm hearing you better. Your volume is more equal to mine, I think, at this point. So, um, yes, I was. Uh, I, I use these Bluetooth headphones, and uh, last week I was much softer than you on the recording, but that's okay. Um, I just wanted to say that it's uh, September 9th on the west lawn of the Capitol. Um, because I've been looking it up, I'm thinking of going. Actually, that would be great. Um, you want you want to be the reporter on the ground or something? That'd be awesome. I, I'd like to. Uh, of course, uh, you know, the, this Iran deal is a catastrophe. Um, yeah. I, it's a Wednesday, so it's a Wednesday. I, I have no idea whether I'll be able to go with with regard to work on that day. But uh, if I if I can go, uh, I will try. But I. I may not be able to because of work. Um, so, I, so what do you what do you what do you make of it? What do you make of this event? I mean, what do you think it means politically, and do you think it means anything in terms of being able to stop the deal? So, the way the law was written, the unconstitutional law, um, is they have to vote on it by the seventeenth of September. Mm-hmm. If they don't vote any, if if no vote occurs, then, you know, it, the deal uh, is deemed to be approved. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, of course, but that's, that's the idea. So the Democrats' new strategy is to run out the clock on it um, and not have any vote at all, filibuster, you know, do that sort of thing. Um, and the Republican uh, strategy is to lie down and play dead because they don't want to fight. And so I I don't, honestly, I don't think there's any way to stop the deal. Um, I wish there was, but the, um, the whole thing is a, is a fraud from beginning to end, uh, top to bottom. Um, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything we can do, uh, but the, but this rally is put on by the Tea Party Patriots and they invited Cruz and of course he'll, he jumped at it, and he invited Trump because if Trump 
goes there, then they'll get coverage. So right. uh, I think that's kind of what, you know, and Cruz hasn't picked any fights. That's one of your other topics. Uh, he, he hasn't picked any fights with, with Trump. Um, I think that's a very good strategy. I think it's a very long-range strategy on Cruz's part. Let right. the Bushes and the and the Rubios and whatnot insult insult Trump and say what a goofball he is. Cruz has his own work cut out for him, and he's going through it methodically. I, I think when you look at the uh, polls, <coughs> excuse me, mm-hmm. when you look at the polls, Cruz is up there. I think Trump is number one, and Ben Carson is number two in Iowa, and Cruz is number three. And uh, he's 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 doing the tortoise thing, and he's making some headway. I'm, I'm very yeah, I mean, I'm, the, the, I'm very the, the, pleased the, with the way it's going. The tortoise thing, and then also the way that Harold put it. You know, he's kind of in the wake of the big speedboat. You know, the powerful boat, which is Donald Trump. You know, and here's Cruz kind yeah. of, you know, positioning himself to sort of ride in the wake of that. And it seems like it's a strategy that's working well. It certainly got him compliments from someone named Marin Kogan, who wrote at New York Magazine basically saying that he has this strategy. They're saying that Cruz apparently has this strategy of wooing controversial candidate Donald Trump and positioning himself to win over Trump supporters if or when that, you know, Trump sort of flames out of the race. Uh, Debbie here in the chat room was asking, and she was actually asking this of of Harold, uh, you know, I'm not on the phone with him anymore, but how do we know that Trump really doesn't have this sort of machinery that's going around getting the signatures and everything like they need to do? We actually don't know for sure, right? We just haven't really heard anything about him having any, any sort of machinery on a state-by-state level, right? I haven't read anything either that he doesn't have it or that he does have it. Right. I mean, he obviously has a campaign staff. That's their job. Right. Uh, I can't imagine him not doing that. I mean, Trump is an idiot savant, right? I mean, he is a very successful businessman. He is very good at organizing things. He builds fairly large, complicated properties. Uh, I would not imagine that he's just let that go. I assume he has people who do that. He's out there stirring up Well, and and if he can get 30,000 people to show up in Alabama, that's where he had that big rally, right? Certainly he can get however many signatures he needs to get on a form. I I think so. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think the the real question is that the Republican electorate is very much conservative – in both senses of the term, they like they like right wing candidates, and but they don't like people who are completely out there. And so, while Trump has a, a fairly large and vocal set of supporters, I don't think that's going to translate into a victory when an alternative exists. I mean, that's how McCain got. Uh, nominated in 2008, right? I mean, because McCain, I mean, McCain's a lunatic, but he was he was thought to be safe and electable. Of course, right. that was wrong. 
Um, but that was what the thought was. Uh, and well, and same, same with Romney. Same with Romney, right? Right, safe and electable. Um, this time, I think that, you know, Jeb Bush was thought to be safe, uh, but he's not doing well. Uh, Scott Walker can't put two sentences together. I mean, I like Scott Walker. I mean, he's unlike Bush and Christie and Kasich. He, Walker's in my yeah, he'd be fine list, um, but he's not. He's not doing it. Uh, Carly Fiorina's got a little bit of uh, got a little bit of support after the last debate. That was great. Uh, she does, but I you know, I, I've, I've been reading good. these articles about Fiorina that CNN, if they continue to stick with whatever their criteria are for this next upcoming debate, you know, because CNN is hosting it, that it yeah. relies on it She's relies on all the Fiorina's not going to be able to be in, and so then the idea is should CNN change the rules because apparently Fox News, for example change their rules at the last minute last time to allow more people in and the FEC didn't make any big stink about it and so people are arguing that similarly CNN should bend their rules a little bit to make sure that Fiorina gets to be in because now she is polling in the top 10 so why not give her the chance yeah. to get on that stage and it's not yet clear whether CNN's going to allow her to do it so that could really put a damper on all the momentum that she's been you know gathering there's going to be a bunch of debates. I mean, there's nothing in it for CNN to put uh, Fiorina on the stage. I mean, how, how are they going to go off and say the Republicans are anti-woman if they if one of our shining stars is <laughs> true. a woman? So, true. True. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, there's there's no there's no incentive uh, that them changing the rules. They're allowed to change the rules. The rules just have to be set beforehand. They can't be arbitrary. That the no. law, the the FEC rule is is not that you have to set it six months in advance. It's just that you have to set it at some point, and then keep it set right. so that it's right. not arbitrary. So they right. they could certainly, and that's what Fox did, you know. So they could they could change it. Um, yeah, they're, they're and, not and, and they also changed it in the direction of allowing, I think it was more people to participate in the so-called, I guess it was called happy hour debate or something. But um, yeah. so, so let me ask you this question. If it is a Trump cruise ticket, would you vote for that ticket? Um, Trump isn't in my I would never vote for him under any circumstances bucket yet. Now, I, I, uh, unlike Jeb Bush or Kasich or Chris Christie, um, now I say that knowing full well the craziness that that sounds. Um, well, and, and here's now, the thing. I only have... I, you know, I, I've got this one friend on Facebook, and I don't know if you've friended this person on Facebook. Um, I'm not sure if he's actually public about this, but he probably is because I'm sure he tweets this stuff too. But he has gone from basically talking about, you know, Trump supporters and and how crazy they are and anybody who's a Trump supporter like doesn't have a brain in their head. I mean, he, very insulting things he says about Trump support. And now he said that he's he's up the ante. He has said that if you are a person who under some conceivable scenario might vote for Trump, then basically you are not worthy of any sort of consideration as having a rational faculty or you know some really horrible characterization this guy gives you so 
congratulations that you've you've entered this category of people who now, are not worthy I, I, I of consideration think, under I think any it is, Yeah. I think it is conceivable that I will vote for Trump in the sense that my going to the moon someday might be conceivable or you know taking a trip to Jupiter uh it's it's conceivable it's just you know it's certainly not i, I don't you know you, you you have to kind of you have to kind of distinguish between trump the per, tv performer and trump the actual person well I and and, and trump the actual person kind of is potentially influenced by a ted cruz right or just you know he he uh he has a lot of bad ideas okay right so do all the other candidates mhm so the question then is is any one of those ideas so bad that he's off the scale or is his temperament is that his real temperament if if that is his real temperament rather than a show for the tv cameras then yes, right. of course you would never vote for him. The problem is, I don't everything I've read of people who know him in business say that he's not like that in business. That uh. is a TV persona. That is a TV persona that he developed on The Apprentice to get ratings. Uh, well, then I keep I keep so, thinking that this is all one big reality show. You know. Well, yeah, I mean that's. I, and I wish you could vote. I wish you could vote somebody off the island every every debate. I wish we would have a debate, and then we'd all get together <laughs> and vote someone off the right. island. Right. Oh my God. Yeah, that's, that's the way we should do it. Okay. All right, I'll let okay. you go, Amy. It was a lot of fun uh, last week uh, arguing about immigration. I, it certainly, uh, we're up to well over two hundred comments. Uh, that was a that was a great time. I wanted to thank you again for letting me participate in that. I really appreciate it. Of and, course, uh, um, have a good it's it's yeah, it's still it's still going on. So I invite people to go over to don'tletitgo.com and and chime in and get in on that. I mean, because that's really where we've narrowed down the debate, right? Are people able just to walk across the border unfettered unless there's probable cause and particularized suspicion in advance of them coming across? Right. That's where we're at. I think that's the fundamental issue. Yes, that yes. that uh, and and it doesn't matter whether it's a better world than it is today or or a worse world. I think I'm on the side of no, right. And other people are on the side of yes, right. And then and, and then, then if you if know, you're on the side of no that there is some stopping and some questioning of something that can go on, then we can start talking about what questions and right. And what criteria, yes, what right. criteria. Now, I have a lot more stringent criteria than you, but I Probably. think that's I think that's the the essence of the uh the essence of the issue. Um, okay. and it's bound up into what a country's what a country is and what steps it can take on self defense. Is it like just one big homeowners association or not? <laughs> right? Yes, I mean that's the right homeowners association, gated community, right? Right, right. People people who live in a gated community, they can't do whatever they want. 
No, um, and in, fa- in fact, you know, we we hire we hire you know the homeowners association to have security for the gated community that stops and you know stops people who are trying to come in and either they've got the card that says they live here or they have to show that they're a guest or you know whatever the criteria are. And, and if they're guests, know. the the person who's their guest of has to take responsibility for their actions. Sure, and there are certain sure. things that they right. just can't do. I mean, if you if you yeah. live in a gated community and you want to have uh, five other families live with you, that's just against the rules, and you can't. And you and no matter how much you jump up and down and well, say this is my private and, property, and, and there is there is that too. But then the question is, do we want to draw the analogy out that far, and how far could we actually draw this analogy out? But this might be a useful yeah. analogy. Any. So I urge people who are interested in continuing this discussion and debate, go over to the blog at DontLetItGo.com. I don't know if we're actually going to come to a full consensus among objectivists anytime soon for the reasons that Harry Binswanger put in that latest post over on his uh, HBL list site. But it's uh, yeah. it's definitely been an illuminating discussion, right, Ed? Yes, I'm very, I'm very pleased to see that... Uh we're able to engage in this debate on a very important topic and not, uh, you know, in, in a constructive, relatively civilized way without. Yeah, I would, uh, I would, say, I would say relatively civilized. There's a couple of things that I've been moderating out, but not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So thanks, Ed. And I'm sure we See will ya. talk. Again. Um, I got a couple other calls here that I'm going to grab. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is uh, John in Carson City. Hi, John. How are you? Okay. How's yourself? I'm doing fine. So you are the hero who walked up to Ted Cruz and gave him a copy of In Defense of Selfishness. And then you had said you wanted to do the same thing to Carly Fiorina. Is that right? Yeah, well, I couldn't get near her that time. But eventually, uh, I think we all should, uh, you know, go to these events, these meet and greet and uh, shake hands and give them books. And uh, I'm trying to compose a letter to Carly. Uh, I don't know if she's ready for that, for Peter Schwartz's book. But, you know, I have to find out if she has any contact with objectivism, whether she forgot all about it. And I think I'm going to send her a copy of uh, Capitalism, Ayn Rand's Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, to re- give her a refresher course. Okay. See. Cause, uh, but anyway, regarding the debate, I want to echo Mark Levin, who said, look, I'm just sick of this. This debate is for Republicans, about Republicans, so we can look at Republican candidates. The Republican Party should dictate the terms for the debate, not Fox, not CNN, not CBS. Right. You see what I'm saying? I mean, yes. it, it's the, the head of the Republican Party is such a wimp. It's Reince Priebus. I mean, he mm-hmm. should be dictating to CNN. These are the people that are going to be on the debate. It's not. It's not going to be about your correspondents or Megyn Kelly or anybody else. It's going to be about the candidates. Period. In fact, I would even give them the questions to ask because the questions are, uh, I think, from the Democratic National Committee. And they're not terribly intelligent, okay? So those, that's those are the, the questions approach, that CNN, CNN is going to use questions from the Democratic National Committee? I think that's what it sounds like. Huh. You know, they're out to get somebody. But, you know, speaking of questions, if you ever read George Will's column, um, on these uh, debate years, he comes up with some really great questions. 
if you can uh, get some of his columns. They're they're far better than anything on Fox or CNN. Oh, certainly, so, certainly. Anyway. I mean, you yeah. you and I, John, you know, we could sit down and we could come up with a list of questions, oh, yeah. and it's much better than whatever they're going to come up with the next time. Guaranteed. Absolutely, yeah. Like, uh, if if I can ever get into a Hillary Clinton meeting, I'd answer, uh, say, about honor killing, you know, that Muslim practice of killing uh, young girls that date outside, you know, uh, Christian right. men or something. I'd answer flat out, what does she think about that? Is, do you have to adopt the position of cultural relativism? Do we as Westerners not judge that at any time or any place? Or what if it happened in the U.S.? Because for the next president, that will be happening in the United States, honor killing. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And, and, and we know, so, we know so that a president I, I would, I, would tolerate it, that's for sure. Yeah. So, so I, now, now there's a good question. She has to identify that she could retreat into cultural relativism, and I hope there's enough voters around that will notice that. Right. Now, I don't think anybody on the Republican side, well, maybe Jeff Bush, would hesitate to condemn that practice at all places at all times as objectively evil. Right. 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 I mean, that's that's what you want to hear. That's exactly what so, we want to hear. Uh, but we we certainly wouldn't hear that from a Hillary Clinton. Right, right. So that's that's one question. Anyway, there's there's a whole bunch of others. I'd ask uh, Donald Trump, uh, Mr. Trump, what is China doing financially and trade wise that is not also being done by our Federal Reserve and Treasury Department? Give me yes. a list of things. Yes. Right. And that is his approach his Will. approach just to do more of it on our side? You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. Exactly. Right. Now, by the way, yeah. By the way, um, did you see that thing on Facebook? It was called Abraham Trump. It's kind of a cartoon. It's just hilarious. No. Uh, by all means, get it. This is Donald Trump at Gettysburg during the Civil War, mm. being Abraham Lincoln. As a whole speech, it, it's spot on accurate. Exactly what Trump would say. Okay, so, uh, I'm gonna. I I will have. To- Check that out. I'll definitely have to check that out. Thank okay. you. And then one last thing, uh, Mr. Bosch Fossen, his cartoon on Mitch McConnell is brilliant. Can we get oh, that yeah. to uh, Red Eye? Have you seen that? Um, uh, they, Mitch, uh, Mitch McConnell they, uh, reacting to Barack Obama. But did they did they show that on Red Eye? Is that what you said? They've shown it there? No, 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 no. Uh, Bosch put it on Facebook. Right. A couple times. And I, I said, can we get this to Red Eye or Mark Levin? Because, yeah. you know, it's so great. It's so spot on. No, so, it, it, uh, do you guys still correspond with Red Eye? Can you send him stuff? Um, I think he probably does have a connection there just because he was on the show that one time. So, yeah, he probably right. should go ahead and send it to them. I think you're right. Um, yeah. I, he He's still listening and sometimes calling into this show, so hopefully he's just heard your suggestion, and then he'll go ahead and, and do that. So thanks, John. Okay. And, yeah, keep, nice keep us posted. Keep us posted if you get something into the hands of Carly. We do have one more call. I'm going to go ahead and grab it before I go through the remaining stories for today. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Yeah, this is Barry. Barry, now, hello. Uh, yeah, I've been listening uh, on and off to your show, and... Uh, and uh, I, I heard you talking about immigration, and uh, I just wanted to say that uh, you guys are spot on. 
the immigration plan. It has a lot to do with well, you know, you know, actually what we were talking about is that, that we all disagree on immigration. So some of us are in favor of more open immigration, and some of us want to close immigration down more. I'm more on the open immigration side with sort of kind of minimal screening at the border for certain things to protect the rights of Americans, whereas other people would keep a lot more uh, immigrants out of the country, and this is a debate that we've been having. So there, are, there's actually not a unified position on immigration being, you know, represented here by objectivists on this show. It's it's a debate. It's an ongoing debate. Well, it, it's going to come to an end uh, when it comes to. Uh, it, it's all about. It's all about I mean, drones. Really, it, it's about what? Drones. It's about drones. How is immigration yes. about drones? Because it's easier to build a few drones than to build the Great Wall of China. And if you have an item on you that the drone can identify, then you're safe. If you need passage, you have to go through these uh, 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 protocols put in place. The, uh, immigration laws, but the so you're, 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 you're saying in essence, you're saying in essence that it's going to be drones instead of a fence. But the the things that we're actually debating about are more about the criterion that we would use to decide whether we were going to keep people here in the United States or, or go out. So it's actually a little bit off topic. So um, feel free if you want to rephrase the question, you can put it here in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and go on to a couple of the other stories that I did want to get to. Um, first of all, we've got the Obama administration winning a ruling in the NSA data collection case. Now, this is the case that came up originally under Judge Richard Leon, the district court judge, who granted Larry Clayman's, you know, from uh, Judicial Watch, his request that he halts the NSA collection of the data. Um, as you recall, Judge Leon said that the bulk metadata collection program was clearly unconstitutional, that this was not a valid application of the so-called third-party doctrine. Now what has happened is this has gone up, I guess, to a D.C. circuit. It doesn't say the circuit here, and I'm forgetting the circuit that uh, Leon was in. Um, but the circuit judges... One of them is Judge Janice Rogers-Brown, so you can figure out what circuit it is by looking uh, what circuit she's on. But there's also Judge Stephen Williams and Judge David Sentel on the three-judge panel. And they have reversed the holding that said that you had to stop the collection of the data. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of largely symbolic the idea is that if they've reversed this holding of Leon, that the NSA should stop the collecting of the data, then that is because Leon thinks that Clayman has a good chance of succeeding on the merits. And what this three-judge panel has said is a preliminary matter that Clayman really hasn't shown very well that he's going to be able to succeed on the merits. But let's still give him a chance to make his case. So he still could make his case before this three-judge panel, and he still could win, but it does not look good for him at the circuit court level. Of course, he could still then appeal 
to the Supreme Court if the things don't come out very well for him. But I think the thing that's most ominous in this ruling is that uh, Judge Janice Rogers Brown, she's a circuit judge, she has said that the Obama administration may rightfully refuse to turn over information that Clayman says he needs in order to make his case before the court. And this is a quote from Brown. She says, quote, such is the nature of the government's privileged control over certain classes of information. And then continuing, she says, regulations of this sort may frustrate the inquisitive citizen, but that does not make them illegal or illegitimate, end quote. And so what they're doing is they're doing precisely the sort of thing that Ben Wisner, Wisner, I forget how you pronounce his last name, but he's uh, Edward Snowden's attorney from the ACLU. He was talking about the fact that it is very difficult to get standing for cases in which you challenge these bulk metadata collection programs. Why? Because all of the information is secret. It's back there. Oh, some people were losing sound. I hope you guys all have sound here. Um, that's terrible. We were supposed to have great sound this whole time. <sighs> anyway, I, anyway, I hope it's good. But anyway, I, it's hard for me to make, you know, to to tell you what to make of this ruling. It, it does look kind of negative. It doesn't mean that Obama has won the day by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't like the idea that the judge is ruling in favor of the government in terms of keeping some of the information that's required to substantiate the case secret and not releasing it. So I hope Clayman can find a way around it and do a good thing. There is still going to be the eventual appeal to the Supreme Court, but that appeal has a much better chance of winning if you can show a split between the circuits. And so far, I think only the government is winning at the circuit level. So it's not looking so good. We're going to have to see what happens. Now, what else do we have here? Um, Just to give you just a little breather. Um, We can't take a nap right now. We're finishing up a show. But Telegraph UK put an article out there that says, a nap a day could save your life. And they're talking about the fact that if you take a nap every day, and they're talking about a nap of a substantial length, if I recall correctly, you like you want to have an hour or something. But then they're saying that if you do this, it is going to reduce your blood pressure substantially. And with a substantial decrease in blood pressure, it is also going to um, decrease substantially your risk of heart attack. So it says overall, the average systolic blood pressure readings of regular nappers were 4% lower than the non-nappers when they were awake and 6% lower while they were asleep at night. Um, If your heart is healthy, your blood pressure should should drop at night, etc. So there is actual quantitative evidence behind this. The other thing they do say is that if you drink four or more cups of coffee a day, this increases your risk of heart attacks if you already have high blood pressure. So Watch those things, check it out, see if you can get some naps. One question I'd be interested in, and when I, I read that whole piece earlier today, but you go ahead and take a look. I'd be interested to know whether the napping is 
helpful because people are not getting enough sleep at night. So, for instance, if you did get your seven to eight hours at night, would the nap during the day help you that much more? Or is it that these people are only getting, you know, five, six hours at night and therefore you need that nap during the day to make it up? I'd be interested to know, but take a look at that. Um, I want to finish off with some stories about homeschooling. And most of it is quite good news, but some of it is something that we really have to kind of keep our eyes on because it looks like this homeschooling trend, the momentum in favor of homeschooling is quite high. Um, It's starting to worry some people, and some people I think are wanting to push back against this. But, you know, right now I see homeschooling as the future of the way to get rid of government education in this country, which we desperately need to do. First article that I have is from a publication called Journal Record, journalrecord.com, and Rob Abiaria, who's here in the chat room, thanks Rob for sending these stories, Um, he uh, sent this along. And the headline is Free Market Friday, Doing More with Less. And it talks about the fact that in the state of Oklahoma, where Rob is from, they spend roughly $156,000 per classroom. And nonetheless, taxpayers are always told that the schools are underfunded, et cetera. And in the meantime, The Economist had this cover story this week, and the headline there was a dollar a week school, so that it's a dollar a week for kids going to school in third world countries and getting a much better education than you get in government-run schools here in United States. They say in Lagos, Nigeria... There are as many as 18,000 small private schools, often housed in ramshackle buildings charging minimal fees. And it says the uh, the city's 1,600 government-run public schools try to educate a much smaller share of the population, but children there all too often sit twiddling their thumbs because of high teacher absenteeism. So in these little tiny dollar-a-week schools, They're getting an excellent education. Why? Because they focus on helping the children learn. Um, Now, the average private school tuition in Oklahoma is $4,467 for elementary schools and $7,121 for high schools. Um, But imagine a dollar a week is all you have to spend in third world countries. And, And, you know, people are seeing that you can actually get an education on a shoestring budget and continue and people are starting to do that here in the United States either through private schools although there's a lot more overhead for private schools here due to regulations and that's why they turn to homeschools in California homeschool interest has surged for a very strange reason or at least a little bit odd reason right um, the reason the interest in homeschool is surging right now in California is because of a new strict vaccine law. I don't know if you've heard. I forget the number of the proposition. It's like 227 or something. But they have enacted this law in, in California that says that unless children have certain required vaccinations, then they are not allowed to attend schools. And this is true for private schools and uh, you know, government-run schools and all the schools, they cannot go. And so now a lot of people are saying, I'd rather homeschool my kids and instead of giving them these vaccinations that I don't believe in. And, of course, some people believe in selective vaccinations, but there's others that they don't want to give. And there are 
you know, certain vaccinations that are mandatory that some parents believe that it would be harmful to their kids to give, so they'd rather homeschool. So you've got this interesting alliance, right? A lot of the parents who are the anti-vax crowd, as you would call it, are a little more liberal. That's not always true because there are some people among objectivists, too, who are um, anti-vaccination or at least that they want to do something different than the government protocol. Um, But imagine that you have sort of the people of the right wing who like to homeschool their kids because they don't like the liberal indoctrination that happens in our government schools. And then you unite those with a bunch of people now, especially in California with this new stringent law about vaccinations. They're more liberal-minded, and they're joining the homeschool movement. So you cannot say now, especially, and you really couldn't even say this before necessarily, that the homeschool movement is uniform in ideology. I mean, really all it is is it's parents who care enough about their kids' education and who in some ways disagree with whatever's going on in the government schools. That's what they're doing. Another example of people who are disagreeing with what's going on in the government schools, I think this again came from Rob Abier, although I didn't post it. Um, go to don'tletitgo.com, by the way. Don'tletitgo.com has the links to all these stories that I'm talking about. This is a publication called addictinginfo.org, and the headline is Parent Finds Her Son's School District is slapping anti-abortion stickers into science textbooks, right? So where is this? Um, Suzanne Young, she took to Twitter to tell people that when her son came home from his high school, and this is in Arizona, the Gilbert School District, there was a disturbing note plastered on the inside of his biology textbook. Okay, so this is in the state of Arizona government schools. It says, the Gilbert Public School District supports the state of Arizona's strong interest in promoting childbirth and adoption over elective abortion. The district is also in support of promoting abstinence as the most effective way to eliminate the potential for unwanted pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases. If you have questions concerning sexual intercourse, contraceptives, pregnancy, adoption, or abortion, we encourage you to speak with your parents. And then they cite a couple of Arizona state statutes. So this is in the textbook in the public schools in California. I mean, not California, Arizona. And what is this? This is essentially a compromise that people reach. You know, we have this government entity, government-run schools, and a bunch of people essentially vote democratically to try to figure out what's going to happen in the schools. They're going to teach about reproduction and abortion and sex and all these things, and so then they want to get in whatever their policy proposal is. If it was the Democrats who were in power, then there maybe wouldn't be that sticker at all, or maybe there'd be something about, you know, even though in this science textbook we're showing you about sex between a man and a woman, don't forget that, you know, sex between people of the same sex is fine too. Or, you know, they'd put their liberal agenda message in there, and, you know, everyone wants to get their little message in. In California, there are sections of the education code that say that in the materials, the teaching materials, 
that are in the government schools have to take certain positions on certain issues, mainly having to do with the environment and the contribution of certain minority groups to culture and everything else. So um, this is happening everywhere. And, you know, again, people from all, you know, kind of walks of life and everywhere on the ideological spectrum are starting to discover homeschooling is a way to actually make sure that their kids get the education that they believe their kids should be getting. Um, Thanks to History at Our House, which was passing a story around on Facebook, I have this last one. This is from samepagenation.com, but they're, in effect, summarizing a larger article that's over at Time. And Time had a big you know, article about urban homeschoolers, the trend among urban families to homeschool, how the kids, if they are urban homeschool, they have, they're socialized plenty well. They do very well in college. Um, they actually have a higher graduation rate from college than do the kids who come out of the government schools, et cetera. Um, homeschoolers are actually being recruited by colleges. Homeschool students are being recruited by colleges, et cetera. Um, and it's 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 an increasing trend. Um, I think at the beginning it says that in the mid-1970s, only 10,000 were doing homeschooling, and now it is over 2 million. And the rate of increase is only increasing. So I, I think this is a wonderful trend. And as I said, there are various things going on in terms of government control of education uh, around the country that are pushing parents of various ideologies to get together on this. Now, let me tell you the one thing that I saw out there that is a bit ominous. And this is an article from ProPublica.org. It was also re-reported in Slate. Slate picked it up and and pushed it out there. But it talks about uh, a so-called small group. It says, small group goes to great lengths to block homeschooling regulation. Small group goes to great lengths to block homeschooling regulation, right? So it's just a small group of people. How dare they go to great lengths to block regulation of homeschool? Because we all know that regulation is wonderful. And everyone was talking about the fact that uh, Yaron Brook gave a, a great show on regulation earlier. So I'm sure, and I have to go listen to him, but apply whatever you said to the issue of homeschooling being regulated. So now what they're saying is that they fear that the lack of law that regulates homeschools hides abuse or maybe the fact that there's no teaching at all. Yeah, they say it's co-published with Slate. So Slate is pushing this out there too. It says, in the fall of 2003, of course, they're starting with an anecdote. In the fall of 2003, police in New Jersey received a call from a concerned neighbor who found a boy rummaging in her garbage looking for food. He was 19 years old but was 4 feet tall and weighed just 45 pounds. Investigators soon learned that the boy's three younger brothers were also severely malnourished. The family was known to social workers, but the children were being homeschooled and thus were cut off from the one place where their condition could have gotten daily scrutiny, a classroom. See, homeschooling is evil because if we had government schooling, look at these people, then they would have found out that they were malnourished before. Of course, they had to go all the way back to 2003 for this story, right? But this is it. It's an anecdote. Some 
horrible thing. Uh, Tony in the chat room here says that there's likely more than 3 million homeschooled students in the U.S. right now. By the way, Tony, I think I got this from History in Our House via you. So thank you, Tony, for passing this article along. Um, that's excellent stuff. But I, I love seeing how many that we are getting here. And the fact that, you know, originally homeschooling was illegal, I think, in 30 states. And now it's legal in most states. And in most states, there's not a whole lot that you have to do in terms of jumping through hoops in order to be a homeschooler. What we need to watch is, and we need to, you know, the the small group, and I have, I'm actually not aware enough of the groups in the homeschooling movement, the ones that are the real mover and shakers, the ones that are helping to keep homeschooling free of regulation. We need to support them. This idea that they're going to throw this one horrific anecdote out there and they want to, in effect, start to shut down homeschooling because they know that it means that our government will not have control over the indoctrination of the kids. This has got to be countered. Um, so go ahead and, and take a look at this, but go ahead and support these organizations because we need to support homeschooling. We need to keep it legal. We need to keep it easy for parents to do for their kids. They could look at a you know abuse as as a separate matter. That is not the function of the state to indoctrinate kids so that you can make sure that the kids aren't being abused. Um, finally, I have one last article for you to go ahead and check out, and I'll leave that as a closing note for you. Joseph Gordon Levitt. Um, I really like him as an actor, and he's going to be playing two awesome people in movies this year. It's Edward Snowden. And then the other one he's going to play is um, uh, The Walk. And who's, oh yeah, Philippe Petit, the French guy who walked between the two uh, towers, the two World Trade Towers. That's excellent. But they're calling those guys anarchists. And is the mere fact that the two of them happened to break particular laws that they decided were worth breaking, does that mean that they are anarchists? No. But these movies both look like they're going to be awesome to look at, and I'm glad that we're going to see Levitt playing these roles. Uh, so go check that out. Go to my blog at DontLetItGo.com if you want to leave a comment on today's show. Maybe you want to subscribe to my blog. Maybe you'd like to donate to this show. Thanks to those of you who have donated. I really appreciate it. And continue the discussion on immigration. I'll talk to you guys next week. I'll keep you posted as to the time. Take care. Have a good night. <laughs> 